Welcome to Equipped with Dr. Mario Escobedo. This podcast is designed to equip and grow you as a disciple who advances the mission Jesus started. In each episode, Dr. Escobedo discusses timeless biblical truths. You'll learn how to apply those truths and continue to grow as a disciple of Jesus. So settle in and get ready to be equipped. And now, here's the host of Equipped, Dr. Mario Escobedo. Greetings, blessings, and welcome to Equip the Podcast. This is episode number three. I'm your host, Dr. Mario Escobedo, and I feel such a sense of privilege to get to share these equipping sessions with you. Remember that the entire purpose of this podcast and every single episode of this podcast is to equip you to grow as a disciple who advances the mission Jesus started. Listen, you and I, we are fellow disciples. We're both on this journey to grow as disciples because I know that, like me, you are interested in advancing God's kingdom on this earth. You want to fulfill your role in advancing the mission Jesus started. And so every single episode is designed from the ground up to equip you to grow as a disciple who advances the mission Jesus started. Speaking about equipping you to grow as a disciple, I've created a four-part workshop absolutely for free that I would like to put in your hands. This workshop is titled The Call to Discipleship. And in this workshop, I take a close look at Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 20. And I discuss some principles that you and I can apply to our lives as disciples of Jesus. Absolutely free. This is a four-part video series. Each video is about, I'd say, eight to nine minutes long. Not very long, but you can sign up for this free workshop for free at my website, marioescobedo.org, and I will leave a link to my website in the description of this episode so that you can get to it easily. And look, as I've suggested before, you can use this, obviously, for your own personal growth. Absolutely. You need to do that. You should do that. But if you're somebody who has the privilege and the opportunity to equip others, maybe you're discipling somebody, you're equipping somebody at your church, then use the principles that you learn in this workshop to equip them as well. Let me encourage you, as I did in episode number two, that if you haven't listened to episode number one, take some time right now, either pausing this episode, coming back to it later, or finishing this episode and then going to episode one. And the reason I want you to listen to episode one is because in that episode, I give you some information about who I am. I think it's good for you to know who's providing these teachings to you. Also, what this podcast is designed to do, who is it for, and what you can expect from the episodes of this podcast. So let me encourage you, if you haven't done so yet, go ahead and take a look at episode number one of this podcast. In this episode, in our equipping time for this episode, we're going to be looking at Joshua chapters three and four. We're not going to look at every single verse in those chapters, of course, but we're going to look at some verses in those two chapters and look at how we can extract some principles from those chapters that we can apply to our lives as we grow as disciples. This is the the, the section in the book of Joshua where Joshua leads the people of Israel to cross the Jordan River. But before we get into that equipping time, let's get into the segment that I title, Did You Hear About This? (music) 
Did You Hear About This is a segment that's going to appear maybe not in every single episode of the podcast, but certainly in many of the episodes. What I do in this segment is that I look at something that's happening in the world and I comment on it with the intention of providing some suggestions as to how do we, as disciples of Jesus, respond to a situation that we see taking place in the world today. Listen, we are in this world. We're not of this world, but we're in this world. And so as disciples of Jesus, we need to know how to respond to situations that we see happening in our world, how to respond to them as disciples of Jesus. And so in this segment of Did You Hear About This? I'm asking you, did you hear about this? The massive winter storm that hit the state of Texas. Now, this took place in February of 2021. In fact, that's when I'm recording this episode. You may be listening to this episode many months down the road, but I'm talking about what happened in February of 2021, specifically starting about Valentine's Day, February the 14th, and extending all the way to about February, what was it, 18th, 19th, somewhere around there, a massive winter storm hit the state of Texas. Now, this is a very real situation for me because I live in San Antonio, Texas, and we were hit hard by this winter storm. And I'm going to tell you that the state of Texas, at least down here where I live, and I would say this is true for most of the state of Texas, we're just not built for this. It's not that we're weak necessarily. No, it's just that our our infrastructure, our roads, our buildings, our homes, uh, us, our, our, our vehicles, we're, ju- we're just not built for this type of weather. And in fact, this winter storm was a once in a generation, I think some have even called it a once in a hundred year occurrence. So it's not as if we were at all or remotely prepared for this. And along with that winter storm, our lack of preparedness was very evident because so many people, millions, literally millions of people, ourselves included, went without power for several days. Some people had it even worse because they were out power and water as well. Some people had it worse still because because of the freezing temperatures of this winter storm in many homes, many homes, pipes began to burst. And so people are dealing with the cold, with the snow. And then on top of that, water that's just gushing into their homes. I mean, it was just a disaster in so many different ways. Now, I would say that we as a family, we, you know, we, we encountered some difficulty, but we didn't encounter it as badly as some of the people that, that we know personally and some of the stories that, that we're uh, reading about in the news, seeing on, on the internet and stuff like that. Let me read to you some of the headlines that, uh, that I'm seeing today as I'm recording this episode. All I did was Google Texas winter storm and a whole bunch of different uh, headlines came up. For example, uh, this is from CNN. Here's how a week of frigid weather and catastrophe unfolded in Texas. They report that at least 26 people died across the state of Texas since February the 11th, uh, having to do with that winter storm. Millions lost their power. This is what they wrote. I'm, I'm quoting from this article. Millions lost their power, forcing families to huddle over a fireplace. Yeah, we did, we did that. Scavenge for firewood or spend nights in their car trying to stay warm. 
Others spent hours searching for food as shelves emptied and weather conditions led to food supply chain problems. We experienced that as well. On one of the days that I was able to get out of the house, I, I went to a, a couple of different restaurants, uh, and these are fast food restaurants. And the lines, the lines for the fast food restaurants were at least, I was going to be in line for at least an hour to an hour and a half. And I'm talking about burger joints, fast food places. I ended up finding a chicken place and I said, you know, what? I'm just, I'm just going to wait. And uh, it wasn't that bad. I waited for about 40 minutes and I just said, give me all the chicken tenders you can give me. And I take, I took them uh, home with me. So we saw that we saw people lining up outside of grocery stores. Our big grocery store here in San Antonio is HEB. And there were lines. I mean, people were lined up outside of the HEB in the frigid cold waiting to get inside. And once they were inside, they, they found empty shelves. Now there was some, uh, some food still available, but for the most part, uh, empty shelves, empty shelves all over the place. Uh, another headline, it reads this way, uh, Texas is still reeling from devastating winter storms. And for some recovery could take months. And the reason they say that is because there were some people who left their homes, had to go live uh, for a few days in a hotel well, there are expenses related to that, and a lot of people who had to leave their homes to go live in a hotel, they did so because uh, uh, what I mentioned earlier, pipes were bursting, uh, no electricity, and so not just the expense of living in a hotel and having to find food, but now coming back to your home and finding all the repairs that you're going to have to do, that could take months of recovery, not to mention the financial hardship that that's going to cause on a lot of families. It, it was just, it, it, was, it was just bad. It was bad. Another headline, this is from uh, CBS News. Uh, this is sad. This is really sad. It says, a family of a boy who died during Texas winter storm sues ERCOT, that's the Energy Reliance Commission of Texas, for $100 million. And they're citing that they, that they put their little boy to bed. Uh, how old is he? I think 11 years old. They put him to dip to bed and he was covered up. He was layered with clothing. And, uh, next morning he, he, he arose and, and well, the next morning he was, he was deceased. Uh, and they're claiming that he died of, of hypothermia and just a sad situation. His wasn't the only death. There were some people who died of carbon monoxide poisoning. They went into their garages, got in their cars, turned on their vehicles to stay warm. And, you know, I just, they, they lost their lives because of, of that, uh, inhalation of the carbon monoxide. Uh, this now this is another headline and just a different a different type of hardship. This particular person, uh, he 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 didn't lose his power. His lights stayed on, according to to this article. But now he owes sixteen thousand seven hundred fifty two dollars in his electric bill. Imagine that sixteen thousand seven hundred dollar electric bill. And it has to do with whatever uh, energy company that he's using, the way that they that they regulate their prices and stuff like that. But uh, this, and this is this is an older man. This man, according to this article, is uh, sixty three years old, army veteran, and uh, apparently he uses a credit card to pay his electric bill. So I guess that was just an automatic payment. And he said that he had to use his savings. He lives outside of Dallas, had to use his savings to pay off that bill. And he said, "I'm I'm, I'm basically I'm I'm broke now." I'm broke. It, it was, it was, uh, it was something else. It was something else. Like I told you, we, we lost power at our home. Uh, the first day of the storm, which was a Monday power was coming and going. Well, it was gone more than it was here. Uh, 
but uh, it was just a just I, I never wish to live that situation again. Now we we ended up fortunately we ended up going to my brother in law's house. He interestingly enough he didn't lose power for a single second, and I I, I don't get it. I, I I really don't get it. But thankfully thankfully we had somewhere to go. So it was my family, a family of four. My other sister-in-law also has a family of four. My brother-in-law, they're a family of three. And then my in-laws, they were, we were all there in, in his house, 13 of us in all, and three dogs. Uh, and it was good. I mean, it was good. It, fortunately, you know, we, we had a good time. My, my wife's family, they're just so easy to get along with. So there was no drama. There was no getting upset and mad with each other. It was just, it was just really pleasant time, actually, that we got to spend together. But there were so many people from our church. I was making calls all day long, just calling out, calling to people, making sure they were doing okay, seeing if we could help with anything. And so many people in our church that they just, they had to stay put. And uh, as I'm, I'm reflecting on this situation, you know, I just, I, I, I have to ask my question. What do we do as disciples of Jesus when tragedy strikes? What do we do as disciples of Jesus when we encounter a situation that's not only personal, Meaning it doesn't, doesn't happen just to our family, but in this case, it happens to an entire community. How should disciples of Jesus respond to these types of situations that impact an entire community, in this case, an entire state? I can tell you one thing. There are some definite ways that we should not respond. Now, I'm seeing on social media, on Facebook primarily is where I spend my time as far as social media goes that there are some Christians who are responding really negatively. And some, some are just being downright nasty. And I just don't think that that's an appropriate response as a disciple of Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that we should be doormats and just let everything happen to us and, and let everybody walk all over us. No, I'm not saying that. But certainly there is a level of responsibility to which we hold ourselves as disciples of Jesus. And I think that in these types of situations, we need to demonstrate that disciples of Jesus don't lose their cool. We, yeah, we can get upset. We can be frustrated. Absolutely. Of course. I mean, that, that's, that's just human, right? But we demonstrate that our trust is in God and that when difficult situations hit our lives, we continue to trust in God. There's a, a story in the, in the news right now of one of our senators, Senator Ted Cruz, Senator of Texas, who during this winter storm went to Cancun with his family. I mean, right in the middle of this winter storm, he went to Cancun with his family. Now, he's offered explanations and he's offered, I think, something of an apology. I'm not here to side for him or against him. No, not at all. But I'm just thinking, whatever your reasons were, it just didn't look good. It just did not look good. And I learn, I learn a principle of leadership and discipleship from, from that mistake that he made. And, and here's what it is. The higher you go in leadership, the fewer rights you have and the more responsibility you have. And in the world, meaning people outside of the kingdom of God, they, they have that inverted. See, the system of the world tells us that the higher you go in leadership, the more rights you have and the fewer responsibilities you have. But the kingdom of God inverts that. Jesus himself inverted that notion 
where he very plainly demonstrated to his disciples, I came to serve, not to be served. And then he called his disciples to do the same. And so when I saw that story of the senator who he left to Cancun, you know, he, he didn't break the law. He didn't necessarily sin, but I do think that he violated just the basic cardinal rule of leadership. You don't leave your people when they're in a crisis. And I think that's something that we can learn as disciples, that as you grow as a disciple, as you reach new levels of leadership and responsibility as a disciple, be it in your church or in your community, understand that the higher you go in leadership, the fewer rights you have and the more responsibilities you assume. That's something I take away from that. But again, very importantly, how do we respond in a crisis? We need to demonstrate that all the stuff we talk about, having faith in God, trusting in God, he's our provider, he takes care of us, as long as we're under his wing of protection, we're fine. All those things we talk about when things are going okay, they need to manifest themselves <laughs> when we're going through an actual bad situation. Because if not, if we react a way that, in a way that's different when we're going through a crisis, then what we profess, what we say when things are going fine, then I would suggest that we're failing as disciples of Jesus. I'm not saying we can't be sad or upset, but hey, we need to live out in the moment of crisis, whatever we profess in the moment of calm. I think that's what disciples of Jesus do. Another principle that I learned through this situation, because I'm telling you this, this is something that really impacted us as a family. I learned that this was a perfect opportunity for us to live out the love of Christ with our neighbors. And I'm, I'm so proud of the church that I'm a part of because at our church, uh, we, the leadership of our church, I can't take any credit for this at all. The leadership of our church, they opened up our church as a warming center. The church did not lose power. And so there were uh, houses around the church that, that, that they did lose power. But our church opened the doors and said, hey, if you need a place just to come for a few hours and warm up, we'll have some snacks, we'll have some hot chocolate, hot coffee, C go ahead and come in. And they just opened, we opened the doors to the community. Uh, here in a couple of days, our church is going to be distributing water for those families that are that were affected by, by, by burst pipes and et cetera. On Sunday service after this, this massive winter snowstorm, uh, our church was giving out grocery gift cards. Uh, a few days prior to that, our church gave out $20,000 in gift cards. So I'm, I'm just so proud to be part of a church that demonstrated the love of Jesus during this crisis. And, and I think about that and I say, okay, our church did that. Now, what do I, me personally, Mario Escobedo, what do I do in order to demonstrate the love of Jesus during this crisis? And so I'm, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not tooting our own horn or anything, but we felt that we did what we could. We couldn't do a whole lot, but we did what we could with our neighbors. So we have some neighbors. We took them some groceries from what we had that, you know, we went over to their house just to see how they're doing. They're, they're an elderly couple. And they said, you know what? We're okay. We just don't have any bread. I said, well, guess what? We, we have bread. And so we brought them some bread and they thought that you would have thought that we brought them a steak dinner. And all it was, was it wasn't even a full loaf of bread. It was like half a loaf of bread, but it's what we had. And we gave it to them and they were just so grateful. It's like, oh my God, this is the greatest thing. And, and I mean, we just wanted to demonstrate the love of Jesus. The following day we went to their house and they didn't have any eggs. 
And we're like, well, you know what? We we were able to find some eggs here. Have some of our eggs. And again, it was like, oh, you're you're, you're just so wonderful. And you know, we and we just wanted to demonstrate the love of Jesus. We we just wanted to be disciples and and demonstrate the love of Jesus. Uh, we took some some uh, caldo de res. That, that's some uh, like a beef stew, uh, Mexican beef stew. We took that to some neighbors. My daughter, who's taking a culinary arts class in high school, she made some bread, and we were able to take that to some neighbors. And you know, th- there was no hook, there was no gimmick, there was no gotcha. It was just like, hey, we made some bread. Uh, I know bread is hard to come by right now. Here, ha- have a loaf of bread. And, and we're 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 just trying to demonstrate the love of Jesus through this crisis and through this situation. And I think you'll be surprised at what you can do as a disciple of Jesus during a crisis situation. And I think that as disciples of Jesus, when those crisis situations hit a community, it's a wonderful opportunity for us to mobilize as disciples of Jesus and demonstrate the love of Jesus. So what do I take away from this situation? What do I learn as a disciple of Jesus if something similar to this were to occur in the future? Well, right and responsibility. As a leader, as a disciple, I have the responsibility to live out the love of Jesus, to demonstrate that love to my neighbors and to others who are in need. And crisis situations present excellent opportunities to show the love of Jesus. And as a disciple of Jesus, when I encounter a difficult situation, that's where my faith stops being theoretical and it has to be practical and lived out. And that's what I learned from this situation, this massive winter storm that hit the state of Texas. That does it for this segment of Did You Hear About This? Let's go on to our next segment, our equipping time. This segment, Equipping Time, is when I present a teaching from the Bible with the sole purpose of extracting principles that we can apply to our lives as disciples of Jesus. And for this segment of Equipping Time in this episode, I'm going to be looking at Joshua chapter 3 and Joshua chapter 4. I'm not going to be reading the entire chapter. These are long chapters, so I'm not going to read absolutely everything. But let me give you just a little bit of context, what's taking place here. The people of Israel are no longer under the leadership of Moses. Moses has died. Joshua is now the leader of the people of Israel. And he has the responsibility of taking the people of Israel across the Jordan River. They're on the east side of the Jordan River. And now his responsibility is to cross the people over to the west side of the Jordan River to begin to take possession of the promised land. Now, there's a bit of a problem here. There's a lot of people, and there's a river between them and the promised land. But of course, God had a plan. And so the plan was going to be, or the plan that God gave to Joshua, was that the priests who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant were going to go into the Jordan River, and when they would step into the water of the Jordan River, a miracle was going to take place. The waters of the Jordan River were going to stop flowing long enough for all the people of Israel to cross over to the west side of the Jordan River to begin taking possession of the promised land. So I'm going to read some of the verses that are in chapter 3 and chapter 4 
so that we can understand how we can apply principles from this passage to our lives as disciples. Now, this is what chapter 3, verse 15 says. Now, the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. So that tells us that the water wasn't at its normal depth. It was a little higher than normal. Passage continues to say, Yet as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, verse 16, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarethan, while the water flowing down to the Sea of Arabah, that is the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. Now, obviously, this miracle is very reminiscent of what happened with Moses at the crossing of the Red Sea. It's not identical. Of course, when Moses crossed the Red Sea, the waters of the Red Sea split in two. That was, that was a, a, a sea, right? So it made sense that it would split in two. There wasn't a current. So the water split in two. In this case, since it's a river, the water, the flow of the water was stopped long enough for the people to cross, to cross over. Verse 17 reads as follows. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. So there, there's the miracle. The Lord stopped the water. The people crossed onto the other side. Now, once that was completed, the job wasn't done yet. The Lord commanded Joshua to do something. He told him to appoint 12 men, select 12 men, one man from each of the 12 tribes of Israel for a very special task. Now, I'm going to read in chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. This is what it says. So Joshua called together the 12 men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, verse 5, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. So the priests, they're still standing there in the Jordan. The water's still stopped. They're still there. And Joshua tells these 12 men, go over there to where the ark is. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites. The first part of verse 6 reads, to serve as a sign among you. Now, let me pause here and just give a bit of commentary. This is very interesting to me. When, when Joshua gave these instructions to these 12 men, by the way, he received these instructions from God. When he received these instructions, notice that he told them, go to the middle of the Jordan and take up a stone on the shoulder. So we're talking about a large stone. We're not talking about, hey, go out and find a pebble, pick up a rock with your hand, something you can carry, and, and just bring it out. No, we're talking about a large stone, a boulder-sized stone, something that was heavy enough that it had to be hoisted onto a shoulder in order to be carried out of the Jordan River. So we're not talking, this, this detail is going to become important a little bit later. We're not talking about any small stone. We're talking about a large stone that had to be carried out of the riverbed on a man's shoulder. Now, verse 6 continues to read of Joshua chapter 4. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Verse 7, tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, 
the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. Now, here's what I, what I find significant about these stones and why I made such a big deal about talking about the size and the weight of these stones. I can imagine a scenario in which a father is walking along the bank of the Jordan River and they come across these stones and he's with his children. And the children ask the question, what do these stones mean? And the father begins to elaborate and tell the story about these stones. And he tells his kids, oh, those stones, those big, those 12 big stones that you see right there, those 12 stones are from the middle of the Jordan River. And I think his kids would have looked at him and said, you're dad, come on. You're, you're, it's a dad joke, right? You're, you're pulling our leg. How th- that's impossible. Those stones are too big. Nobody can jump into the Jordan River, swim all the way to the deepest part of the Jordan River because it was the middle of, of the riverbed. No one can swim all the way to the bottom of the riverbed, pick up a stone that big and then swim out with it and throw it onto the bank. It's impossible, Dad. No one can do that. And that makes sense, right? You try jumping into a swimming pool with a cinder block tied around your waist. You're, you're not going to make it back up. And so that would have made sense. There's no way that anybody, regardless of how strong they were, could dive into the deepest part of the Jordan River, pick up a large stone, and then bring it to the surface and to the riverbank. And that's the point. That's the whole point. Of course, it's impossible. Of course, there's no way that anybody could do that. And that's where the father would have then the opportunity to share this miracle with his children. And he would be able to tell them at that point, okay, let me tell you what happened. You see, the Lord stopped the flow of the Jordan River. And all of us, or maybe, you know, if it's several years later, all of our ancestors, they crossed on dry ground. And while the water was still stopped, 12 men went and they brought out these big stones. You're right. You're right. I don't know, little Daniel. You're right, little Joshua. Nobody could swim into that river and bring out a stone. But because the Lord performed this miracle, then that's the only way that these stones are here. And so we read in verse seven that one of the, the, the purposes or perhaps the primary reason that these stones were set up is that it says these stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. It was, they were set up so that the people of Israel would never forget this miracle that the Lord had done. And it was set up so that in future generations, in fact, that's exactly, that's exactly when verse, what verse six of chapter four says, in the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? So there was purpose behind these stones. The stones set up as a memorial were not just for the people who witnessed the miracle, but perhaps more importantly, it was for the future generations who had not witnessed the miracle. And they served as a, as a, a conversation starter, as a way of telling future generations what the Lord had done, how he had been faithful, and how he had fulfilled his promise to the people of Israel. Fantastic, isn't it? Now, what does this mean for us 
as disciples of Jesus. What does this mean for us who want to grow as disciples of Jesus? I think there are several things that we can take away from this. Number one, remember the things that God has done in your life. And if necessary, maybe you set up a memorial stone of sorts, something that you have in your home, something that you have in a drawer somewhere that reminds you of God's faithfulness when you encountered a difficult situation. I know of people who have been in the hospital for various illnesses, and once they get out of the hospital, they keep the bracelet that they were that they were uh, that they put on them at the hospital, and they don't keep it as a as a point of misery, right? Oh, I remember when I was in the, no. for them. That's 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 a sort of memorial stone that when they see it and they hold it in their hands, they're reminded of God's faithfulness of how. He brought them through that situation. We have something like that. When one of our daughters was about two years old, she contracted a disease, very rare disease known as Kawasaki disease. And she was in the hospital for five days. And and we were young parents. Oh man, we were young, young parents. And we just remember how scared we were. We remember just thinking, what's going to happen? Did we do something wrong? Did we put our daughter in danger? And we still have the bracelet that they put on her when she was in the hospital. And every time we see that bracelet, we remember God's faithfulness. And we take the opportunity to tell our daughter, she's too, you know, she was too young to remember, but we take the opportunity to remind her, you know what, God performed a miracle in your life. And the doctors caught this in time that there's been no permanent damage. They told us that if it hadn't been caught when it, when it was caught, there would have been permanent damage to your, to your circulatory system, possibly to your heart but God was faithful. That serves as a memorial stone for us. Uh, For myself personally, I have a cake pan. Yeah, a cake pan. When I was growing up and I was about, I don't know, 10, 11 years old, my dad lost his job. My mom wasn't working. And in order to make ends meet, every Thursday night, my family, my parents, my sister and I, we would make pineapple upside down cakes. And we would make 30 to 40 cakes every Thursday night. And the following day, we'd go out and sell them for $5 a piece. And I remember my mom telling me, this always stands out to me, that there was this uh, business owner, a man who owned a, a lighting store, lamps and lights and et cetera. And she said that every time she stopped by the store, which was every Friday, every time he bought a cake from her. And my mom says that she knows that he was fed up with pineapple upside down cake. She knows that he... He was tired of pineapple upside down cake, but every time she went in, he bought her a cake. And not too long ago, one day that I was at a grocery store, I saw one of those cake pans that we used to use to make pineapple upside down cakes. It was the same color. It was green, just like the one I used when I was a kid. And right there at that moment, I was with my wife and I said, I want to buy that pan. I had no intention of making cake. I I mean, I haven't even made any pineapple upside down cake since I was a kid, maybe once or twice. But when I saw that cake pan, it reminded me of that situation that we went through. And more than that, it reminded me, I couldn't reflect on that when I was a kid. I didn't really know what was going on, but as an adult, now I was able to understand. And it reminded me that in that entire time that we were making cakes, that my dad didn't have a job, that my mom didn't have a job, you know, that our light was never cut off. Our electricity was never cut off. Our water was never cut off. We were never in danger of losing our home. We never had a car repossessed. 
There was always food in our refrigerator. I always had clothes to wear. God was faithful in that situation. And so now I have this cake pan that for me serves as a memorial stone. And from time to time, when I see that memorial stone, that cake pan, I'll tell the story to my daughters. They know the story, but I'll tell them again, and I'll remind them of God's faithfulness. And now that we've just come out of this winter storm here in Texas, my wife and I, we're, we're looking around the house, and we're beginning to see some memorial stones, some things that, that we see around our home that all of a sudden we, we flash on a memory. For example, when I see our stove, we have a gas stove, not an electric stove which means that even when our power was cut off, we were able to cook and we were able to nourish ourselves and make enough food to take to our neighbors. That reminds me of God's faithfulness. I look at our fireplace, which is gas powered and how, even though it put out very little heat, it's really more for looks than than for function. But nonetheless, we would turn on the fireplace when the heat, when the electricity would go out, we'd huddle around there and just, just get a little warm, just a little warm. And now when I pass through there, I'm reminded of God's faithfulness, memorial stones. And so as disciples of Jesus, we need to learn some things from this, these, uh, these two chapters, Joshua 3 and 4. Remember God's faithfulness. Don't take his faithfulness for granted. Remember his faithfulness. As a disciple of Jesus, be aware of how God is faithful in your life. And remember that. And perhaps even more importantly than you, remembering God's faithfulness. Speak of God's faithfulness to the next generation of disciples. That could be your children. Remember that in Joshua 4, it says, in the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Then the parents were able to provide an explanation of God's faithfulness. You take the opportunity as a disciple of Jesus to pass on the stories of God's faithfulness to the next generation of disciples of Jesus. That could be your children, but it could be somebody in your church who is barely starting off in their walk as a disciple of Jesus. There are going to be opportunities for you to share with that individual how God has been faithful in your life as a disciple of Jesus. Don't keep those things to yourself. Talk to people. Tell people, show them your memorial stones. More On more than one occasion, when I've preached in church, I've taken that cake pan that I bought, I've taken that cake pan into the church, and I've shared the story of God's faithfulness with my congregation. And it's encouraged people. It's helped them to grow in their faith and, and acknowledge that God is faithful and trust that God will be faithful. So very importantly, as you remember God's faithfulness, be sure to talk to others, to pass on to the next generation stories of God's faithfulness in your life. And you know what? That's, that's part of what we do as disciples. We disciple others. We equip others. And one of the ways that we can equip and disciple others is by sharing with them how God has been faithful. Isn't that wonderful? That's just a wonderful passage to reflect on. I want to encourage you to take some time and to go back and and more slowly and more deliberatively reflect on Joshua chapter 3 and 4, and then 
think of something that can serve as a memorial stone for you and for your family. And also very importantly, be intentional, start praying and thinking about asking the Lord, Lord, who needs to hear my story? Who needs to see my memorial stone? Who needs to hear about your faithfulness in my life? And I, I, I assure you that the Lord is going to begin to plant somebody in your heart with whom you can share the story of God's faithfulness. Very well, friends, that does it for this episode. Thank you so much for taking time to tune in. My prayer as always is that what you've heard in this teaching equips you to grow as a disciple who advances the mission Jesus started. And if you've been equipped, then let me challenge you. Take what you've learned in this episode and use it to equip somebody else. Until the next one, God bless. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Equipped with Dr. Mario Escobedo. Our prayer is that what you learned in this episode was both encouraging and challenging. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so that you never miss out on a teaching. Also, be sure to check out additional resources at Dr. Escobedo's website, marioescobedo.org, and on his YouTube channel. Links to both are in the description of this episode. Thanks again, and may you continue to be thoroughly equipped.